Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 7th by Pastor Rod Heppel. This is the 10th and final message in our 2021 Winter Sermon Series entitled, The Joy of the Lord, the Book of Philippians. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. We're into our last sermon in our sermon series on Philippians. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that Pastor Dave challenged us with these words of the Apostle Paul. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. He noted that it's a command. It's not just a suggestion. And that the command was to rejoice in the Lord, not in our circumstances. Uh, circumstances. And, and that we're to do this always, which also includes that we're to do it forever. So we're going to see that in today's um, lesson, Paul ends his letter with the same spirit of rejoicing. He's rejoicing both in the Lord and he's rejoicing in the faithfulness of this church in Philippi that has remembered him and his needs. So let's start with a summary of our story. In order to get the full effect of the closing words of Paul in this letter, let's briefly review how this story's gone. So about 10 years earlier, more or less, Paul, earlier than writing this letter, Paul and his companions had planted a church in Philippi. It had been established through some pretty spectacular events, like a fortune-telling slave uh, being set free from an evil spirit, which then angered her owners and eventually landed Paul and Silas in jail. They were severely beaten, and yet in jail they were praying and singing and witnessing. Then there was an earthquake and their chains fell off, but no one left, and that led to the jailer coming to faith in Christ. He washed Paul and Silas, and after hearing the gospel, it says that he and his entire household were baptized. So that's how this church was started, through these pretty spectacular events. And because of the great sacrifice that Paul and his companions had made, this church family had remained grateful to them. They'd never forgotten that. After all these years later, they were still showing their thankfulness to Paul by from time to time sending financial gifts to support him in his church planting ministry in other cities. And while it did seem that Paul had a policy that he wouldn't take money from the city he was planting a church in, you know, where he would presently was working. He wouldn't take money from them, but he did take support from other churches that would support him in this ministry. Now, in our letter to the Philippians, Paul is in quite the predicament. He is in Rome, or at least that's what seems most likely, and he's in prison. He's awaiting a trial to defend the gospel and to see whether he will live another day or he'll be killed as an enemy of Rome. Now, the Philippians have heard about this situation that Paul is in, and they're greatly concerned for him. And so they decide to send him another one of these financial gifts, along with one of their members in their church, who's Epaphroditus. The plan is that he will deliver the gift to Paul and then stay with Paul to care for his needs. But it didn't quite go as planned. Epaphroditus falls sick, almost dies. Paul then thinks it's best for him to return back to his home church. And in his hand, he will carry this very letter that we've been studying, the letter to the Philippians. As we've been reading through this letter, we've noted a few things. We've noted that it is personal in nature. It's not rigid or formal. It's not a theological treaty. It's filled with all sorts of expressions of gratitude, concern, and appreciation for the church that Paul dearly loves. His concern is also that they stay on track with following Christ, that they're on mission both with preaching the gospel, but also living the gospel. What we're gonna see here in today's closing words of Paul in this letter, is an understanding of partnership. There's a partnership that he has with them and them with him as they've faithfully given these gifts to support him. So while Paul is the one that's preaching the word, they are the ones that are financially supporting him to be able to do so. And 
in this way they've partnered in the gospel. So here are the words at the close of this letter from Paul to his church in Philippians. Philippians 4, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received your uh, received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Gift giving can be tricky. And there seems to be some kind of trickies that Paul is dancing around here in this passage at the close of this letter. It seems like he's trying to thank them for sending the financial gift, but not beg them for more. It also seems like maybe there's some cultural, social understandings or expectations around gift giving that he's trying to navigate through. We understand this. It happens to us as well. If you give me a gift, do I now owe you a gift? And if your gift has a certain value, is my gift to be the same value or more? If I invite you over to my house for a meal, do I now expect you will invite me to your house for a meal? You see, there are, there are for sure some cultural elements that come into play. Some of those social norms and expectations around gift giving, and I think that's going on here. So Paul starts off in verse 10 with what seems to be a pretty straightforward expression of his gratitude for their renewed support of him. So it sounds like maybe for a time they were unable to send a financial gift, but now they've been able to once again. So Paul is rejoicing at their renewed concern for him or their continued concern for him. But then it seems like he takes a left-hand turn in verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, he says, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Well, what is this exactly? Is this Paul the spiritual leader and teacher capitalizing on a teachable moment? Or is it simply hard for him to humbly accept the gift that was given? It doesn't quite ring true that that's Paul, right? He's not being self-righteous here. Paul probably has a motive that we don't quite understand, but it could be something like this. It could be that he was, well, wanting to express gratitude to the church, not sound like he was desperate for more. So he's thanking them, but not asking for more. You know, once my wife, Anne, commented very innocently on how lovely a set of earrings were that a lady was wearing. When the lady then proceeded to immediately take her earrings off and give them to her, which she was like, no, 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 I'm just saying the earrings are beautiful. I'm not saying that I want them. So even compliments can be tricky. Maybe Paul's trying to assure them that they've done their part in supporting him and he's thankful for it, but, but he's fine now. I mean, he says in verse 18, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift that you've given to me. So who knows what's going on here in their thinking? 
they might be thinking they owe Paul forever. And Paul's like, no, you've, you've, you're not indebted to me anymore, right? Uh, you know, they might be thinking, but Paul, you, you came, you sacrificed when you planted this church, and we, will, we must continue, right? And he's trying to alleviate that. Well, whatever the motive for Paul talking about this contentment piece, we actually need to look at it because it's rich with truth and insight and understanding um, about how life works. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Like, wow, that's quite a statement, right? Like, can we make that statement? I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. My statement might sound more like this. I have learned how naturally discontented I can be in life circumstances. I remember once when I was a kid that my grandmother was going to give each of us grandkids a jackknife. So moments before the big event where she would pass them out to us, someone knocked me over and I bonked my head and I came crying to my mom. My grandmother, wanting to cheer me up, gave me first pick of all the options of the jackknives. Now, this was a pretty difficult thing because there was all sorts of shapes, colors, sizes, and I got to choose first. Well, it did work in that I stopped uh, crying, so that strategy was a good one. But it was a pretty hard choice for me to make. There was the big flashy red one with one large blade, and I thought, well, that one large blade, I can whittle wood really good with it. But then there was a super cool blue one that had two smaller blades. They were smaller, but there were two. So my grandmother, realizing I was, you know, struggling to make this decision, was encouraging me to make it because the other kids wanted to choose theirs as well. So I chose the red one, the one with the big blade, Following me, <clears throat> my cousin, the same age as me, chose his. And he took the blue one, the one with two blades. Immediately my heart sank because I knew that I had chosen the wrong one. Now there was nothing wrong with the one that I chose. Both were great options. The problem was I couldn't have them both. You know, even if I had chosen the blue one, I still would have felt the same regret that I hadn't chosen the red one. But you get that, right? Discontentment is ingrained into our very being. We want something so badly and we finally get it and then we're on to wanting the next thing. Paul's not even talking about being content with the frivolous luxuries of life here. He's probably thinking of whether or not he gets a piece of bread for supper that night or whether he has a cloak to keep him warm. Of course, he would like a piece of bread for supper and he would like a cloak, but he's learned something. Something that many other people who have plenty of food and plenty of clothing have not yet learned. And that's to be content, whatever the situation. And how has he learned this? Well, he's learned it through the many, many times that he's endured hardships. And it was through those experiences that he learned something. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. In his moment of need in life, he found God's strength and contentment. Learning to be content in life comes from having Jesus as your top priority. That's what Paul's secret is here. He says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No one could take Paul's most prized possession from him. That was Jesus. That was his secret that he had learned. Jesus says in Matthew 6, He gives us this perspective on life, this secret if you will. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or, what, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, 
add a single hour to your life? You know, Paul knew the secret of contentment, and he knew that it was keeping his eyes on Jesus, keeping him first place. Matthew 6 also says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, so, after, so often we're seeking after all those other things before Christ. Christ comes last, all that other stuff comes first, and we're disappointed, we're discontented, we're empty in life. Paul had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, this could sound like self-sufficiency, like he's really strong. And I, I want to contrast it to a Greek school of thought, a Greek philosophy at the time of Paul, and it's called Stoicism. The Stoics were people who believed the greatest aim in life was self-sufficiency. And the goal was to remove all emotion, feeling, and desire from life so as to not want or need anything or anyone. And to be clear, they thought that this was living. One author said of them, the Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. Paul's not aligning himself with this kind of self-sufficient thinking. He's not saying, look at me, I've achieved self-sufficiency. He's saying, I know the contentment of life, the secret of it, and it comes from Jesus. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, after Paul's little diversion in, in verse 10, where he talks about contentment in verse 11 and 12 and 13, he comes back in verse 14, where he started out in verse 10. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Well, how had they shared in his troubles? Well, by caring enough to send Epaphroditus with this gift on this occasion. <clears throat> For this, they were called partners in the sharing of the gospel. Verse 15 says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Now that's a pretty high compliment. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid more than once when I was in need. And then he says, Now that I desire your gifts, what I desire... Uh, is more will be added to your account. I've received in full payment and I have more than enough. Um, I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, acceptable, sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, look at these corresponding words from this passage in chapter 4 to chapter 1, where Paul expresses mutual concern and partnership in sharing the gospel. So in chapter 1, 5, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, relate that to chapter 4, 15, where he says, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So you see this partnership. And then his mutual concern. In 1, 7, the first part, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And then in chapter 4.10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. So you see that mutualness of concern. In chapter 1.7b, he says, whether I'm in chains defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share, all of you share in God's grace with me. In chapter 4.14, he says, yet, I, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So there's this relationship of giving and receiving between Paul and this church. Paul had given of himself to them when he planted the church, and now they had remembered Paul and supported him. And back and forth, this went. And Paul calls that sharing in the gospel together, partnering together. 
It's the same reason why we support our missionaries. They do the work of the Lord in another country, and we help meet their financial needs. We pray for them and care for them in the ways that we can because we're partnering with them in the sharing of the gospel. Anne and I have just finished a Zoom call with Heidi this week, Heidi Gladman, who's a missionary in Bolivia, or has been. And uh, you're going to see that soon enough. But in our conversation, she reflected on the efforts of our Sardis Kids program, where they make cookies at Christmas time. And this last year, they had to make Christmas cards because of the whole COVID situation. And then what happens is the money generated from that goes to support the um, street ministry called the Jordan. So each year, the kids decorate the cookies each year or the Christmas cards, and we purchase them. We, we make a donation, and then the money goes to the Jordan ministry. And Heidi said, you have no idea how much of a boost it is to their ministry that at the start of their school year, all of these families have the supplies that they need. All because our Sardis kids have this initiative. She said it was the first time that a church had actually partnered with them like that each year that they could count on that gift that it was coming. And it actually has inspired other churches in Bolivia to start doing the same. So it's in ways like this that we get to partner in the gospel with our missionaries. In this passage, we might wonder why Paul seems to be deflecting a bit of the gratitude of the gift that he's received. Like in verse 17, where he says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. So let's go back to our earlier thought on gift giving and how it can be tricky. In their culture at that time, there was an expectation on the person receiving the gift. And it worked like this. If you received a gift and you were in a superior position, you, the expectation was that you would give back a better gift than the one that you'd received. So if I give you a pen, then I'm expecting that you're going to give me a bike. Now, if you received a gift and you were in an inferior position, the expectation would be simply that you respond back with words of gratitude and appreciation, and that was sufficient. So you give me a bike, and I gush about how wonderful you are and generous a person you are, that kind of a thing. So which is Paul in this situation? Is he in the superior or the inferior position? I mean, on the one hand, he's in prison, and so at some level he has need, therefore he's in an inferior position. But on the other hand, he is the great apostle Paul, the one who had brought the gospel to that church that came to life. But Paul, by calling them partners, has shifted the conversation from the social norms of gift giving to outlining the spiritual nature of how gift giving works in God's kingdom in receiving and giving, giving and receiving. He moves all sense of expectation. Paul has nothing to offer them in return for their generous gift. He can't give a gift back like that. But God does. God can. See what he does here. He calls it an offering and a sacrifice which is pleasing to God. And it's not gone, out, gone unnoticed by God. It will be credited to their account. And finally, in verse 23, Paul blesses them when he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So they gave, Paul received, God takes note, Paul blesses, God takes care of them. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God, and then my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. In Bolivia, when you do a favor for someone, like say you pick them up and you drive them to the next town because they're walking along the road, they'll give you this blessing. They say, Dios recompensa, which means God will reward you. And quite honestly, many of them 
couldn't actually pay you for the service, and so the blessing was about as much as they could give you. Well, Paul's kind of in that situation too, where he can give them the blessing, but he can also point them towards God's sufficiency because he knows it for himself. He is far more excited about what it means that they gave the gift than he is about the gift itself. Because the fact that they have remembered him and the fact that they have given sacrificially means that they get it. They understand how God's kingdom principles of giving and receiving work. That we are all in this together. And when we have opportunity to be generous and to help meet a need, we do so. And we don't do it to get something, but out of a sincere heart to help, God takes care of our needs. I remember one time when one of our kids gave a financial gift of support for the Lord's work. And I remember how I felt as a parent observing this and realizing they get it. They know what it means to be a cheerful giver and to help meet a need. And you know, if you were to take every penny you ever made and spend it only on yourself, you would not be happy. You'd be discontented. You would not know the joy of the Lord. You would not have found that secret of contentment. When Anne and I and our family were going out to Bolivia to serve there as missionaries uh, in the late 1990s, we were raising our support. I'd been a youth pastor at a church, and the new youth pastor that came to take my place, him and his wife wanted to support us. Uh, but their income was modest, and their expendable income was very limited. And so we didn't know this right away. We found out years later. But they decided to cut their cable vision so that they could take the money they would have spent on cable and put it towards us. And we were like, wow. And they said, no, 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 no. We would way rather give that money to you and support you and the Lord's work down there than have cable vision. Well, the Philippian church had sacrificed. It cost them something, and Paul was aware of that. Their gift came at a cost, and so he says, don't worry. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Giving and receiving in God's kingdom and in the way it works, it's a beautiful picture. Are you a part of that picture? Do you support your local church and missionaries? Sardis Fellowship sets aside 10% of our general offerings that come in each year to go towards our missions. So last year we had $600,000 coming in general offerings. We budgeted $60,000 for missions for 2021. If you give to our general budget, 10% of what you give is going out the door to our missionaries and mission agencies. On top of that, we set aside 10% of our offering on the first Sunday of each month, as we did today. It's an expression of giving of our first fruits to help meet the benevolent needs in the life of our church family, as well as supporting outreach and kingdom ministries that are going on. So we partner with them. Now that, that's about $1,500 a month that go out for those kinds of work. But on top of that, many of you personally support missionaries and mission agencies and projects that are advancing the gospel in this world in many different ways through other avenues in Sardis Fellowship. And if we were to add that up, my guess would be it'd be about double of what we do collectively right here. You partner with those who share the gospel because you know the joy of the Lord in doing so. Paul was grateful for their gift. He was encouraged by their thoughtfulness. He rejoiced in the gospel advancing even while in chains. And he gave God the glory for all of it, knowing that he is the one who takes care of us. So in the end, he says to God, our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then at the close of the entire letter, at, at verse 23, he says this, the grace, and this is the blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And so he concludes his letter of joy to this church that had stood with him over the years. 
And I hope that you have felt something of the joy of the Lord in whatever your circumstances are in these last two and a half months that we've been going through this sermon series. And with Easter only a month away, we're going to start into a new sermon series next Sunday, focusing on Easter, and we're calling it Battle of the Wills. We're going to look at the example of Jesus Christ as it says in Luke's gospel, he set his face toward Jerusalem knowing what that meant, knowing that it was God's plan of salvation for us, knowing that it was God's will for Jesus to do that. So join us next Sunday as we engage deeply with what it means now to be the followers of Jesus to carry out God's will for us. So here are our discussion questions for today. What cultural values today contribute to our being discontented in life? Two, have you learned something of what it means to be content whatever the circumstances? Three, do you have a gift giving or receiving story that you would say was tricky? Four, in what ways do you partner in sharing the gospel and what brings you joy about that or about this? Five, in your sacrificial giving, how has God met your needs in Christ Jesus? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.